The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Jessica, I'm loving this back in the live. This is our second one live. This is so great sitting across from you. It's it's way easier than waving my hands in the camera on the uh, <laughs> on the on the Zoom call. We because for people who are listening, we have been over the past year, we've been using a service called Riverside, and basically it's like a Zoom meeting. Jessica and I and the guests would all and we'd be on on camera with each other. But now that we're back in the office, we actually have a, a kind of a cool podcast studio set up here in, in the, the monument wealth, wealth management world headquarters here in Alexandria. I know Virginia, this, right? this whole microphone and headphone setup in person makes me feel a lot more professional podcaster than I, I feel like I should feel <laughs> like, I think we're still amateurs, but, but I also think it's just much more. I just feel like I'm having a conversation with you across right, the table right. now. Right. And so, and, and, Today is really exciting because we have two guests that are also coming in live. So this is really our first episode where everybody is live in the room and nobody's dialing in. Right. So this is exciting. I'm excited right. to do this. So. so we're today we're talking about residential real estate. Yeah. You know, as as wealth managers, we talk a lot with people that are looking to, hey, I'm I'm thinking about buying a home. Hey, I'm planning to sell a home. I'm planning to downsize. I'm planning to buy a second home, you know, all these sorts of things. So residential real estate is a big, you know, personal goal for most people. And so we've got two experts on today to kind of talk about the two different sides of residential real estate, the buying and the selling side, and then the the lending side, the borrowing. So our guests are Joan Stansfield, who is with Stansfield Signature Real Estate. She's a real estate agent in the DC area and David Turner, who is with Prosperity Home Mortgage, both people that have decades in the business and really do know what they're talking about. So hopefully this is a good listen for everybody. Yeah, I'm excited about this. It'll be interesting to hear them both talk about current events and what's going on because, you know, with interest rates going up and everything and housing prices going up, everybody's got a lot of questions and these two are here to answer it. With that, let's get to our first guest, Joan Stansfield. I want to welcome our first guest, Joan Stansfield. Joan is president and owner of Stansfield Signature Real Estate. With over 15 years of experience in residential real estate, she and her team help clients in the Washington, D.C. metro area buy and sell primary and secondary residences, investment properties, and land for new construction homes. You can also check out Joan's own podcast called Listed for Love. So welcome to the podcast, Joan. Hey, thanks so much. So I want to break this into your top tips for buyers, sellers, and people who are planning to be in their home for the foreseeable future. So let's start with buyers. Is now a good time to buy a home? Sounds great. May I first go back and mention one thing about my brokerage? Yeah. So I have my license with Keller Williams. So Stansfield Signature is the name of my team. It's also the name of my company. But my license is with Keller Williams McLean, Keller Williams being one of the largest brokerages in the world. So I want to make sure that I give a shout out to Keller Williams. 
So buyers, sure, we love buyers. We really love first-time home buyers because they're so much fun. Of course, it's usually a lower price point, but that doesn't matter at all to us. And because they listen and they sponge and you can guide and help them. Sometimes they're a lot easier than seasoned buyers and sellers or investors. So with the current market, you know, prices seem to be going up. I mean, at least here in the D.C. area, I heard a lot about how the spring market this past year was really crazy. So are they expected to keep going up or are they going to decline? Are they going to level off? You know, like where house is going if you're looking to buy a house? Right. Great question. You know, one market's different than another market, but over the past two years, we've just watched the prices go up, up, and up. It's a little bit crazy. It's not for the faint of heart. We had a few buyers that were new and first-time home buyers a year or so ago decided to wait because they felt that the homes were too expensive and that the rates were too high. They're kicking themselves right now, totally kicking themselves. The people that listened to JoJo and Dana and said, you need to get out there and buy now because prices are going to continue to rise, as are the rates, are really patting themselves on the back. And their friends are like, you got in at 25 or 35 or 4%. We believe those days are gone. So the current buyers we're working with right now, it's not for the faint of heart. It's really hard to help them understand it's still a great time to buy. Prices are not anticipated to go down anytime soon. In fact, maybe the best thing that could happen is the level off. But the inventory remains very bleak. The rates are still very affordable. And now is a great time to buy. So waiting a year is not so smart. And we've had several people that over the past two years that waited and they're still renting. Well, you know, it dawns on me when you say that, that there's really two components to the decision, right? There's how much are you paying for the house? And then there's the interest rate. And of course, the mortgage interest rate, that's going to drive whether or not you can afford the monthly payment. But a mortgage is temporary because you can refinance it. The house, that buying the house is a little bit more of a, a permanent decision. But I remember when my wife and I bought our house here in Alexandria a long, long time ago, 2008 happened and all of a sudden our house was, and I'm using my air quotes for listeners, were, you know, had gone down in value. But I was like, well, if we're living in it and getting value in use and we're not trying to sell it, what does it matter what the house is worth? Fantastic point. It doesn't matter. Unless you're trying to sell right now, it does not matter. And real estate's cyclical, and that's going to happen at times, but it's always going to correct itself and go up. Look at historical home prices. It's insane. Somewhere I heard someone say that our grandchildren will be living in $14 million homes. Well, I believe that because I remember my parents telling me recently, we were having this discussion over them buying their house. I was born in 1992. Oh, goodness. I'm kidding. No, I was was born in the 60s. And my parents' first house cost $22,000. And my dad's brand new Mustang Fastback cost $2,700. And now $2,700 is a monthly mortgage payment. Right. So, yeah. He was probably making $25,000 a year or something. Right. It's all relative. Well, we got off track, but I just, uh, yeah, you're you're right. I'm kind of curious for your top tips of if someone is in a really competitive market like DC, how do you compete to like win the house? You know, you hear these stories of people I put in 12 different offers on houses and none of them were accepted. Yeah. Yeah. We had a few experiences 
where we just had a couple homes that sold for 200 over ask and even one I did in Bethesda that sold 400 over ask. How do you compete? There's a lot of tricks we have up our sleeve and they would include, first of all, the buyer really, really needs, first and foremost, really needs to have a pre-approval letter from, please hear my words, a local, trusted, reputable lender. Not the online guys, not the banks, not the people that will overpromise, or the big, big ones out there. I, I, I won't name names right now, but people that can close on time, our go-to lender, we have several, but our absolute best is Gina Myers of Cross Country. She always closes on time. There is never an excuse not to take care of the buyer and vet them out in the beginning. So every buyer we say, before we go shopping, in this competitive market, no one wants to look at your offer or consider you, and they won't unless you have a lender letter, not just a lender letter, but one from someone that has a track record and that you can trust. Because if not, you're going to go on the bottom of the pile if there's four or 15 offers. What about credit unions? Okay, mixed? You just don't get the great customer service you get from our go-to lenders. The credit unions, they work Monday through Friday. I work eight days a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can catch so does Jessica just about <laughs> any time, right? Yeah. So no, so in your number, they don't really know you personally. So the lenders we like to see our people go with are, you know, we have a list of several, and then we have others that are absolutely fantastic, but we want to keep our our recommendations down to like three to five. Right. Yeah. And and our next guest coming on is a mortgage lender, and I'm sure he'll bring up the topic of your mortgages can get resold and things like that. So it doesn't really matter who you initiate the mortgage it with. I'm, I imagine he'll talk about this, but yeah. Yeah. In fact, it doesn't matter who you get your lender letter from. You can always shop the rate and you have time to switch. Right. Great point. But we always explain to our people, come back to our person because they're going to absolutely likely match or beat the other person's rate and give you fantastic service. What about waiving contingencies? Oh, goodness. So <laughs> the last two years have been kind of a joke. We have a nice little buyer map and we have a seller map. And it shows, you know, once you get past, you know, the first five or six steps of buying or selling, the next steps are the contingencies. Well, they're sort of been out the window the last year or two. To compete, we've had our buyers waive home inspection or do a home inspection void only, meaning they have a chance to go in, kick the tires, and run like hell if it's a money pit or continue and stay with the home and know what they're getting themselves into. We don't like them to waive home inspection, but they've had to in order to compete this past year. So home inspection gets waived, the appraisals get waived, and that's a very key, tricky one. And then findings gets waived if, you, if there's any way you can have that safety net removed, because that's what the seller is going to look for. Cash is king, but not if it's not a decent amount of money, but people with cash don't have those contingencies, the appraisal and the finance. They're just going to pretty much show up at closing and buy the home. So now let's talk about sellers. Do you see people panic selling real estate because interest rates are going up? Yeah, we are seeing the inventory increasing, and I do believe that's the reason why. First, they're seeing what their neighbors got, and second, they're seeing that the prices are going up, and yet in some areas, it is starting to stabilize. Like take the condo market in this area. The condo market is not doing well. Why? Too much inventory. I have two for sale in Skyline right now, and I think there's like, you know, eight identical units of similar size and price, and there's just too many options. So they're going down in value, and they are not increasing other than as opposed to single-family homes and townhomes. Yeah, and, and that's generally the case, isn't it? I, I feel like my whole life I've always I've seen that in action or I've heard people talking about it. It's, you know, the single-family homes are really just 
a little bit different supply demand characteristics than the condo markets. They always appreciate faster and higher. Yeah. So is it still a seller's market? Absolutely. It's still a seller's market. In most markets, I wouldn't say so much in condos, but oh my goodness, some areas around us are just on fire. Annapolis is doing really strong. DC is still strong. Vienna, Virginia is on fire. And any home that shows well and is priced right moves very quickly. The problem we're seeing is so many people saw what their neighbors got and they think they can match or beat that even with their home being inferior. And that's where we're seeing prices come down. People say, oh, prices are coming down left and right. That's because the people listed too high at the onset. Okay. How about... How about with post-COVID and a lot of remote working being coming popular? Are you seeing sellers move out of the urban areas and out to the oh, sub- goodness, suburbs? Yes. Are you seeing that? People are just moving to like Cape Cod because they can or Maine right. mm-hmm. or Florida. We even repositioned ourselves to one of our investment homes near Annapolis. We moved there because most of what I do is remote. When I need to come to Virginia, I come to Virginia. And of course, I'm starting to do a lot more in the Chesapeake Bay area. And I have a team that allows me to do that. My whole team is working remotely. We, we gave up our office in McLean where everybody can work from anywhere they are. You have to be where the buyers are to put them in the car and go show them homes. Other than that, we can do real estate from virtually anywhere. From, from a supply and demand though, are you seeing people, okay, I live in Washington, D.C. I don't need to live here. I don't need to pay these taxes, whatever the reason is. And they have a nice home in D.C. I'm going to move out to Warrington, so they're doing that, but then are the houses that are for sale in DC, are they getting bought pretty quickly? I mean, is it backfilling really quickly or is it creating a supply and demand imbalance? No, it's it's just, it's on fire. Everything. Okay, <laughs> so it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a great time to sell. It's a wonderful time to buy. Sure, a year ago, it was more competitive. The buyer frenzy has has really slowed, really slowed. Not the market, not the prices, but the frenzy. So instead of... When I list a home, instead of getting 15 offers, I might be getting two or three. And if I'm got, not getting any, I'm obviously overpriced because everything is moving right now, except condos are not moving as well. <laughs> so why is the housing market so expensive? So in our area, schools play a huge part of it. You know, where they all of a sudden are putting, the county's putting money into a magnet school or another school, you'll see the prices rise. Basically, it's the world we live in. The price, home prices just continue to go up. And when you have a lack of inventory and three or five people fighting over the same home, the prices are going up because they're overpaying. And when I represent a buyer, if they want that home, I will let them overpay and I will be sure they know they're overpaying because they usually have to waive appraisal and overpay and come to the table. I sold my house last year, as did Dana, and we both went 200k over ask because we knew how to price it and stage it and market it and our buyers came to the table with two hundred thousand dollars cash i knew it would not appraise it's very sad but it was a business <laughs> decision no i'm not going to say okay i'll give it to you at the appraised value because someone else would have paid that money it was a business decision it's insane. That's really one of the one of the value propositions i see in retaining a, a real estate agent to do any sort of transaction is you're going to get that advice that's oh, really people, people aren't paying you to list their home. People are paying you for their advice. And that that is the advice that they're getting. Hey, this is what you should be setting your price at because you'd rather have it bid up a tiny little bit than sit and have to bring the price how down. How to win, how to protect them. Oh my goodness. It's when you're working with a buyer's agent, 
you're not paying that buyer's agent. The right. seller is Sellers. paying the commissions. And for a seller, I can make up my four, five, six percent, whatever I'm charging that seller. I can make that up on their price easily by my expertise and my staging and telling them, you know, I know how to give you 500% return on investment by painting and changing your carpet or taking down this one wall and creating an open concept. It's not rocket science, but most people don't know. They'll be, oh, I need to do this in my garage. Leave the garage. No one can, It's kitchens and bathrooms are what sell houses people, right? So it's very strategic. And literally, we tell people there's like 101 things a realtor does for you that you'll never even know that we're doing in the background. Literally, I have a list <laughs> on paper. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So let's talk about that last group, the people who are going to stay in their homes for the foreseeable future. What's a reasonable long-term rate to assume your house value is going to go up at? Well, I mean, historically, right now in this area, we're at 4 or 5% annually. The trajectory we saw the last two years is not sustainable. It was 15 to 30%. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Some areas. Yeah. Crazy. But that's not a normal market. And we will get back to a normal market, I'm sure. So buying a home is a huge investment mentally, emotionally, financially. And that's part of why I love my job. You're helping someone with something they really need to trust you with making smart decisions like, is this a money pit? Let's run. I know we can find a better home for you. So yeah, it's a huge investment. And yet, my goodness, the name of the game is buy and hold. Now, until this past couple of years, I've never been able to buy and hold. I moved from a condo to a townhouse to a single family, and I always needed that equity to go to my next home. Now, I'm in real estate, and I've learned through other smart realtors that you should invest. So I buy and hold and then rent it or buy and hold and have an Airbnb. I now have five homes, which is great. It's part of my retirement plan. I know it's a good investment. It's real estate. I would rather put my money there than the stock market. And I wish I knew that 20 years ago when I put a huge chunk of money in the stock market. Well, you may get some pushback from us. On I that, was going to say, yeah. we, we like stocks. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, no I have right. a help, very healthy stock portfolio. Yeah. Thank you. And I right, do need no. some help with that. Diversification and, is good. Yeah, it's, it's, we talk about- Diversification, pist- yeah. I agree. We talk about pistons in the engine all the time and it's a little bit of everything. Too much of one thing is, is a bad thing. I know you were saying that a little tongue in cheek, but most people have stocks because they're in 401ks, right? Most people have houses because they're going to they're gonna live somewhere. So just by virtue of just existing, you probably have both anyway. And the housing is kind of interesting because, tell me if you think I'm crazy for saying this, but if you go and you, I'm just going to make up a round number because I can do, if you go buy a million dollar house and you got to put 20% down on it, right? And then you sell that house, again, making up a number for, because I can do this math in my head, for 1.5 in, in however many years, X years, doesn't matter, right? I would argue that you used $800,000 of somebody else's money that didn't expect any share of the appreciation or the profit. All they expect is timely principal and interest payments. That's all they expect. And so as long as you are satisfying that, your $200,000 could net $500,000 if you sell a million dollars for. So you look at from a rate of return perspective, what is your real at risk money? It's the $200,000. So, you know, when people buy houses, I think they kind of lose sight of the fact that they may be buying a million dollar home 
but it's really only costing them $200,000 of their own money. That's with their own money that's at risk. And so it gets this mental perspective of, you know, what's really at risk. And I think that's one of the powerful things about owning a house, especially if, like you said, you take time and make it be your friend and buy and hold. You could eventually satisfy that mortgage. Great. And even if you don't, the mortgage rates are still pretty reasonable relative to the assumed growth rate. So if you said the assumed growth rate is four or five percent, you've got a three percent mortgage, you're you have a positive spread there. But the other thing that's so great about it, most people know, so I'm just gonna say it, is that when you sell your house under most situations, I know there's caveats to this, you're not gonna pay taxes on the capital gains. I mean, yes, assuming it's your primary residence for the past two out of five, last five years and go with it. 1031 exchange. Right. (laughs) So, but right. But if you're a normal person and you live in your house for five years, you know, and you don't exceed that cap and you're lowering your cost base or you're increasing your cost base through your repairs and things like that, there's a pretty good chance that the money that you get when you sell the house, you're not going to pay capital gains taxes on. So your 200 grand that generates 500 grand, the 500 grand you're not paying taxes on. It can start to make a lot of sense. That's a really Mm -hmm. good point. I've never actually explained that to a buyer going in. I think I'll use that for sure. Right. I'm curious about your thoughts on this because you mentioned before kitchens and bathrooms sell houses. Like what if, if you're planning to be on in your house for a long period of time and you're considering a renovation or, or, or some sort of like a house improvement that like isn't a kitchen or bathroom, like it's something that's very specific to you. Like what are your thoughts on that? Right. So we saw a lot of homes that they have done very specific things for them that are not going to attract. In fact, they're going to have the opposite effect on buyers. And it's really hard to talk some people out of that. Like a hot tub in the living room. Like, gosh, <laughs> like, I'm just saying. like blue marble like, floors that yeah. look like the earth when the sun shines. I go, oh. and you spent how much at where? And you really think, no, it, it was a detraction. They spent tens of thousands of dollars. No, I mean- Keeping things neutral, keeping things on trend is always a smart way, but we can't get everybody to operate that way. And it will cost them in the long run. True story, I had a fabulous couple that they were older and I was competing with another agent and they picked me. I was super thrilled and I was early on actually. And their home was bright red, fire engine, red carpet. And it was in the master owner's bedroom. Up the stairs, there were two steps that went up to the deep soaking tub, fire engine, red carpet. They also had an embassy-sized dining room, which was really the living room and vice versa. Tons and tons of tchotchkes. They traveled the world extensively and they had everything out on display. So I explained to them to get top dollar. I like to stage. And the first thing is, you know, paint, sometimes declutter. Well, what would you be suggesting? Well, we could move this. But you're, you're moving, right? So you could pack these. Pre-pack. Pre-pack. Just pack it. It's, it's going to go. You're going to move. You don't need it now pack some of these things up. So I went around and explained everything. And then the the red carpet, oh no, I love the red carpet. Okay. So I said, well, it will affect your price. We don't care. We don't care. So I came back and I said, you're ready for photos. Nothing had moved. They had done nothing. And they said, no, we don't care if it's going to cost us. And it did. It cost them probably 150K in the price of their home. God, and what would a mover have cost to come in and stage and pack? And they were so thrilled that they got to live that way. Well, we did have to change out the red carpet. That had to go because I got feedback from other agents that said that has to go. And she said, well, I'm taking it with me. And I said, that's, that's great. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I think it's, it's, if you are that person, it's just knowing. Just you're knowing like, you're not, it's, you're, you're, you're you not may have to neutralize. When, yeah. Right. Well, so quick sidebar question, cause I, yeah. I know we're coming up to the end here, but just real quick, you mentioned before like kitchens and bathrooms sell houses. So I'm going to assume that 
this statement is accurate, that if you put X amount of money into a kitchen, you'll probably have a very good chance of selling the house for whatever extra money you put into the kitchen, right? Like roughly. Well, here's the thing. If you, a lot of people renovated their kitchen in the 90s. What people did in the 90s is not hot right. in today's market. Right. So the honey oak is you, out. <laughs> the yeah. honey oak, the pickled cabinets, you know, it was, it was really trendy, really beautiful. Certain color tile floors, certain color paint. And some people just aren't willing to change that. They said, well, let them come in and change the cabinets, the appliances, and the paint. They won't come see your house because of HGTV now. They're looking at your photos and your photos better shine. And if they don't, you're going to have a tough time getting showings and you're going to, it's going to cost you in the long run. Yeah. So what is an example of a home improvement that somebody could do that they wouldn't get a big return on investment? And I don't mean the red carpet. I mean like, like a pool. Does, if I spent a hundred grand on a pool and sell my house a year later, am I going to sell it for an extra hundred grand because the pool's in there? You or might the pool if somebody sort of wants like, a pool and they'll pay anything for a pool. I always say there's two kinds of buyers. Pool or no pool. Right. right. And if they want a pool, you're going to get your money for that pool. Okay. But you're not going to get your 100K, maybe if, if you did that years later. But that that's a great question. I'm trying to think like, you know, lighting's important. Hardwood floors are here to stay, I yeah. believe. Uh, granite, they don't even care if it's ugly granite. It's just got to be granite. Okay. Like that seems to be here to stay. Stainless is going out, other things are coming in. But, you know, to say I'm going to do these improvements now and it's going to pay off when I sell my home in 20 years, probably not. That's, yeah. So it's more about what making you happy and knowing that. Making you happy. If you want it for yourself, I just would say don't. I mean, people think to update their kitchen, it's forty to 80000 or I know people that spend four times that. Yeah, depending on the appliances. You can update your kitchen for a fraction of that with the right contractors. So I would always say, just don't overspend, get what you want, make sure it's nice. And because you don't know when you're going to, when you're going to sell and what it's going to be worth. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Or in style. Absolutely. So Joan Stansfield, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a privilege. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I I learned a lot too. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, good. Thanks. I learned from you as well. (laughs) Great. All right. So let's switch gears and let's talk about lending. Joining us here to talk about this is Dave Turner. Dave is a senior mortgage consultant at Prosperity Home Mortgage. With over 39 years of experience in lending, he's an expert in helping clients throughout uh, the mortgage process. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm uh, happy to be here this morning. Yeah, it's great to see you again. We've known each other for a long time, so it's good to see each other face to face. Absolutely. Uh, even forget the pandemic for a second. We haven't seen each other for about 10 years. So Yeah, time yeah. flies. Right, right. But yeah, it's good to see you again, Dave. Well, thank you. So let's jump in. We've seen, as anyone who's been watching the news, we've seen a notable increase in mortgage interest rates since November, December 2021 till now. So what's going on with rates and what do you think they'll do going forward? Well, rates have really been on a somewhat of a roller coaster this past year. Actually, a year from today or tomorrow or this week, back on August 4th, 2021, we've seen rates go from 2.75% to 6.125% back on June 14th. And they are currently sitting around 5% at this time. We think interest rates have peaked for now. Certainly, you know, we can't predict the future, but we we think that rates have peaked. The future direction of rates is going to depend on the health of the economy and how quickly the Federal Reserve can uh, bring down the high rate of inflation. 
Right. So when people that are listening to this and they, they see rates on TV, right? So if the Fed comes in and raises interest rates another 75 basis points at the next meeting, will that cause the mortgage interest rates to go up? Or is the mortgage market already assuming that and it's kind of stabilized at this rate, assuming everything? And as long as there's no surprises, it's going to stay there. What, what happens there? You got it. No, great question. So the bond market is forward looking, right? And so they've, they've already jumped ahead of what the Fed has done because the Fed has forecasted what they plan to do to fight inflation. So when the Fed does what they say they're going to do, that is actually good for long-term rates because long-term rates follow the yield on the 10-year treasury bond. So we see the Fed potentially raising another three quarters in September. And most likely that will have the same impact as this last three-quarter hike, which we saw long-term rates go down. Because when the Fed raises rates, those are short-term rates. So if, if someone is thinking about buying a house, should they wait for rates to come down or should they lock in the rates right now? I would say lock in the rates right now. I would never advise a client to try and time the market. And the decision to purchase a home is, is driven by personal needs, emotional wants, and, and most importantly, their ability to qualify. When all three of those align, I believe that, that makes a sound decision for the person to purchase. So again, I would highly recommend if someone needs to buy, wants to buy, is in that position to make a move, certainly lock in rates now because there's certainly no way to time the market. So what are your thoughts about adjustable rate mortgages versus fixed mortgages in the current interest rate environment? I think you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm thinking about doing an ARM, which jargon, side note, it's basically, it has a fixed rate for usually about a five to 10 year period. And then the rate could fluctuate after that time period. So people are saying, oh, I think I'll do an ARM. And then in case rates come back down in the future. So what, what do you think about an ARM versus a fixed rate? Sure, sure. The ARM option is definitely a great option for those individuals that have a higher tolerance to risk. Also, for those individuals who may not be planning on being in their home for more than five to seven years, an ARM certainly makes sense. If going with an ARM, I would highly recommend that they look for the ARM rate to be at least 1% lower than what the given 30-year fixed rate. That's a good rule of thumb always or just right now? I would say always. Okay. And I would hope that it would be even more than that, certainly, preferably closer to 2%. But the most common adjustable rate products, like you had mentioned, tend to be our five and seven-year products. So the rates fixed for five years or seven years. And after that time, they uh, would adjust semi-annually every six months, although there are five one-arms and seven one-arms where after the initial fixed period, they would adjust annually. So for those borrowers, again, who are less risk adverse, buying down the rate on a 30-year fixed rate is another option in lieu of an arm. So for instance, today's 30-year fixed rate as of today would be 5%. So if someone wanted to get a 4.5% interest rate, they could pay one point to buy that, that, that rate down. Right. And that's basically cash up front. That's, that's right. upfront interest to buy the long-term interest rate down. So now you're looking, you know, you've got someone who's got a 4.5% interest rate fixed for 30 years. 
did cost them some money up front, but if they plan to be in the home five to seven years, they're going to recover those funds. And then they don't have the worry down the road, oh, is my loan going to go up, right? So again, if fixed rates are at five and you can get a adjustable rate at three, that makes good sense. But if you get an adjustable rate at four, four and a half, you could balance the, the risk versus going with the fixed and buying that fixed rate down. Right. I would also assume that there's some decision-making and judgment that should be taken into account for anybody who's getting a mortgage. And I'm just going to make up a scenario and you tell me if this sounds right, but if I am newly married, no kids, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, and I know I'm going to have kids someday. So I purchase a two bedroom, two and a half bath townhouse here, but I know that I'm going to have kids inside of the next 10 years and I'll probably outgrow that house very quickly. There may be some economic benefit to looking at that and saying, well, if I don't think I'm going to be here any longer than what that adjustable rate mortgage term is set at either seven or let's just say 10 years, right? Say like, well, I'm going to be here for less than 10 years. There's probably an economic advantage to taking that arm, paying the lower interest rate, so long as you think there's a very high probability that you sell that house and move into something else inside of that 10 years. That's a case scenario where somebody should actually be really seriously considering an arm if they think that there's a higher probability that they're out of the house for say somebody, somebody my age, 28, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) If I say, okay, right. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I, I know that I'm pretty, I'm I'm very well settled in in Alexandria. I'm probably not going to move. I'm not going to outgrow my house, locking in, you know, getting that 30 year and locking it in because I don't think I'm going to move inside of that term is probably the decision that I'd be taking on that. And then there's the, the middle ground where you're not really sure But it's possible that if you get an arm now, that five to seven to 10 years now, there is a possibility that rates are even lower. So when it starts resetting, you're actually refinancing with no closing costs. So there's that too. It's sort of like, if you have an inkling that maybe rates are towards the top end historically, which I mean, historically they're not, right? Because I remember my parents with a 13% mortgage, but there's some calculus that goes into that, right? Absolutely. And totally agree what you said. So in that scenario, taking an arm, if you don't anticipate being in the home for more than five years, and certainly makes all the sense in the world, even with a 1%, potentially a little less than a 1% spread as well. And I would highly recommend, uh, you know, taking a look at an arm product in that, that instance. Yeah, for sure. that's, that's great advice. I'm kind of curious, is there like an average length of time that people are actually in their home? Like most yeah, people are not yeah, in their yeah. home for 30 years. Yeah, so so the secondary market is predicated on individuals keeping their mortgage six to seven years. Now that doesn't mean that they're in the house six to seven years. That means they're e- they've either moved on or they've refinanced. So as mortgage bankers, when we sell our loans to Fannie and Freddie on the secondary market, they're priced accordingly, you know, to based on a six, seven year return. So to answer your question, yes, people do keep their mortgages about six to seven years on average. So is that kind of connected to why what you were saying before about bond rates follow the direction of the 10 year bond yield is because people are not tending to be in the house for 30 years? Well, the 10 year bond yield dictates long-term rates. Okay. So it's not, it's just kind of the timing is more of a coincidence. Right. Okay. Right, right. Okay. Interesting. So quick sidebar question on that, because you just made me think of, of something that I do personally. This is my own personal opinion. So 
disclaimer, disclosures, everything, alarm bells, everything. This is just me. Okay. I have a 30 year fixed mortgage and I was lucky. This is not skill. This was just total timing luck. I ended up with a 2.25% 30 year fixed, right? Like you just can't get any better than that. And I'm writing the interest off against my taxes to some extent. So I look at that and I think, okay, even if I'm not going to be in that house for 30 years, I'd be probably pretty silly in making extra principal payments because why would I ever want to give money back to the bank when they're lending it to me at 2.25%? And that's before it's even tax adjusted, right? So totally agree. The, right. There are, there are instances where, where a borrower should look at this and say, I'm not so sure that I want to prepay. I don't want to turn a 30-year mortgage into a 25-year mortgage. So I'm probably going to be out of the house in 15 anyway. So why would I give up the use of that capital back to the bank? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not crazy. Nope. Okay. Absolutely not. Right. That's not advice. It's just, it's an opinion. So great. Well, you know, let's go to the other end of the spectrum too, because we were talking about the arms and everything, but I have a question about jumbos. Is there anything noteworthy or important for people who are looking to take out a jumbo loan, you know, now or in the near future? Right. Well, a jumbo loan, as um, most of our listeners probably know, is a loan that's not sold to Fannie or Freddie. It exceeds their loan limit guideline. Right now, the maximum loan limit in the Washington, D.C. area where Fannie and Freddie will purchase a loan is 970800 So any loan size above 970800 is going to be sold to big banks in the private market. So typically, a jumbo loan has always required a 20% down payment. And most of our borrowers are guided by their parents who tell them that you have to put 20% down, which goes back to kind of touching on what you said earlier. Paying your loan off early and putting a lot of money down are not always the best decisions for your money. But as far as a jumbo product, we offer loans up to $1.5 million with as little as 15% down and no mortgage insurance. Oh, that's that's a nice deal. I mean, they have to qualify for that, obviously, in underwriting. They do. Right? Yeah, okay. And as I mentioned earlier, 30-year Fannie Mae rates today with zero points, zero points to buy it down, is at 5%. You could get a jumbo loan for $1.5 million today at 5.125%. So there's, it used to be a, a larger spread between a jumbo loan and a conforming loan. But as you can see, sometimes our jumbo investors are priced even better than Fannie and Freddie. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's an awesome time right now you know, to buy a house and get a jumbo loan. I got a quick question for you since we're talking about the jumbo loans too. The VA loans for people who are listening, especially here in the DC area, military people, a lot of veterans. I'm a veteran. Jessica's husband is in the military, eligible for VA loans too. It's worth talking about and letting listeners know that the rules for the VA loans have changed. There's no more cap on those anymore, right? It's like the VA will guarantee a loan up to whatever you qualify for in underwriting. So if you're a candidate for the jumbo loan that you were just talking about, but you're also a veteran, now you're dealing with potentially even a better interest rate than the maybe, maybe, right? Or definitely, I don't know, but but now there's 0% down. Oh, by all means. So you could, if conceivably, if you could qualify for this in underwriting, you could go out and buy a $1.5 million house and no the money only, down. No money down. So the only thing basically you're going to pay for is the inspection. So you could buy a $1.5 million house for 550 bucks. 
You've got closing costs. Closing costs, correct, right. But I just mean like out of your checkbook. Oh, absolutely. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're exactly right. So VA guarantees the repayment of the loan and they actually have no loan limit. So- And that's new. That's new as of a couple of years ago. The lending community is maxed out with where investors in the secondary market will purchase a loan. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So I will let you know that our standard- no money down VA loan is 1.5 million, but less than a year ago, I just did one here in Alexandria for 1.7 million, no money down. And if that veteran happened to be 10% or more disabled, he or she would be excluded from the VA funding fee. Which is 3%. Which on a repeat borrower is three point, it's over 3% for yeah. sure. So that's added to the loan, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, certainly that's... Sure, it goes into your principal that you're... Re- like, you're not writing a check for that. Correct. Say it adds to their principal, correct. and I remember that too, but you're right. And so for vet- for veterans who are listening to this that don't haven't looked at this in a long time, the rules have changed, you know, back, I don't know, even five, six years ago, it was capped, I think, at the jumbo amount. That was... That was my, and, it, and so it changed, and that's fantastic news for veterans. And the other thing too, is you mentioned the disability... You have to have a 10% disability rating. And if you're a veteran who never went through the VA process of getting your rating, one thing that's worth considering is filing a VA claim and looking at whether or not you have tinnitus or tinnitus, however people pronounce it, because that is that is a very quick rating to have decide the VA decides very quickly on the tinnitus, tinnitus rating, and that's 10%. And so veterans can look at filing a claim if they don't have a rating of 10% going and getting your hearing checked because there's a high likelihood that there's some tinnitus in, in a veteran's background. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. And we, um, again, I'll, not, not VA advice. I often run into, I've been working with veterans for 39 years. So if someone has VA entitlement, that's my first go-to. That's, that's usually going to be the way that I recommend that they go. But getting back to disability, if the veteran happens to be a hundred percent disabled, that opens up the door to not having to pay real estate taxes as well. So now you're looking, you know, at reducing your monthly mortgage payment significantly without having to roll in the funding fee and then not having to pay real estate taxes. So I guess I guess the wrap up there is if you're a veteran, make sure you go back out and reevaluate what your benefits are because they've changed and they've been modified recently, which is absolutely and just one more thing on VA loans. Most veterans may not be aware, but you can use your VA entitlement over and over again, and you can own multiple homes with VA loans on them, as long as your entitlement is called partial entitlement. So any questions about VA loans? Definitely give you a call. You sound like you know. Yeah, great, great. That's terrific. Well, Dave Turner, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.